0: The National Archives podcast series, Prison, 500 Years Behind Bars, presented by Edward Marston. Thank you very much for the invitation, thank you very much for turning up this afternoon. I imagine it's the 50 pence off the ancestry that's brought you in, perhaps. <laughs> I did notice on the tickets that there was a lovely image of a noose, which is a kind of grim warning of what might happen if you didn't like the talk. Um, LAUGHTER Um, We've designed the talk, really, to appeal to a variety of people, those who are interested in family history and genealogy who might be in the room, those people who are generally interested in something about the history of crime in this period, and also for people who are interested in long-term studies of criminality and people who desisted from crime. And looking at your faces, that's just you and me, Dave, I think this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> but hopefully there'll be something which appeals to everybody here. The period that we're interested in, I suppose, could be characterised as one of the first penal crises or first prison crises. We're interested in the period from around the 1870s and 1880s onwards through to about the 1940s. Our previous, Up to this period... The the main way of disposing of people perceived to be violent or persistent offenders had been transportation, first to America, and then after the revolution there when it wasn't quite as easy to send our moral refuse, as they were called, to the American colonies, we switched to the Australian colonies where we had a mass transportation system, eventually 168,000 people being transported across to Australia. And some of those transportation records are kept in our National Archives and in other areas as well, so it might be interesting to have a look at those some some point if you get the chance. When Australia began to flourish in its own right and uh, gained a kind of economic foothold in the new land, it wasn't possible to send our convicts because they didn't need convict labour anymore, they didn't want to have their their, um, population stained with more convicts coming over. And so the English authorities, the British authorities, needed to find another way of controlling problem populations and serious offenders. And this caused a real problem, because if you're not sending people overseas, we needed to embark on a mass prison-building system in the United Kingdom. But we were left with the existing system which had been running and operating in the colonies. One of these remnants, which was repatriated back to England, was the ticket-of-leave system. In Australia, you served a period. Or convicts served a period of detention uh, in a convict depot. They were often then put out to work building up the new colonies. And if they behaved properly and if they succeeded in kind of processes of reformation, they were granted a ticket of leave. The ticket of leave gave them the right to a kind of probation, if you like. And if they didn't reoffend, they were allowed to serve the rest of their sentence and become free men in a new colony, which is all fine when it happens in Australia. What happens when transportation ends is that people who had not fully served their time, if you like, and I think you can probably see echoes of this in contemporary discussions, if they hadn't served their time, they couldn't be fully reformed, was the public view, and yet they were free to walk on the streets of London, Liverpool, Manchester and there was a worry that criminals were wandering amongst us. This coincided with a general feeling of disenchantment with prison. There was a feeling in the 1850s that prison simply wasn't hard enough. It wasn't acting as a deterrent to crime. The conditions weren't harsh enough, and therefore prison wasn't having a deterrent effect. And then the spark which set off a big panic in the 1860s, the garrotting panic, a largely mythical and imaginary panic in actual fact, that there were groups of kind of what we might call muggers nowadays, but garotters wandering around the dark back streets of London who were strangling and mugging people and that this was a, a terrible crisis which was getting out of control and the government weren't doing anything about it. You can see here, this is a cartoon from Punch, a satirical magazine at the time called Going Out to Tea in the Suburbs, A Pretty State of Things for 1862 showing that uh, respectable men and women needed an armed guard simply to go out to tea. So there's a big panic, a moral panic we call it now in criminology. And of course, I don't need to say what moral panics are, we have have them periodically in our society today. As governments do, this government leapt into action in the 1860s, brought in increased prison sentence for repeat offenders. So trying to increase the deterrent effect on people who uh, were having trouble in reforming. They brought in reporting conditions for prisoners. So all men released from prison were required to go and report to a police office every two weeks so that tabs could be kept on where these people were living, what they were up to. But it was a very inchoate and not a really well-developed system. And then the thing which interested us as, uh, as criminologists, the 1868 and 1871 Habitual Offenders Act. The Herbiturial Offenders Act brought in uh, a lot of provisions which are very interesting to criminologists but are also very useful to people studying history and looking at individual offenders in this period. One of the provisions was that prison sentences were lengthened. Minimum tariffs were brought in. If you committed more than two serious offences, you would serve a minimum of two years in prison. You were also then subject to, or could be subject to, seven years' police supervision, which meant that every week you were to report to the local police station, you would sign off to say that you had been there, you were to report any changes of address, you were to report what work you had been doing, if any, and if you intended to move from the area, you were required to tell the police, the local police constable chief of police where you were going to, And that chief of police in the neighbouring area was contacted so that you could, in some cases, be met at the train station and escorted to a place of residence. So this was a great information-gathering system. That information was recorded in habitual offenders' registers, complete with a photograph of the offender, details of all previous uh, uh, convictions. So the creation, really, of a, a massive bureaucracy... I'm sure this would be called now a a multi-agency partnership or something like that. (laughs) But it basically made that uh, lots of the uh, institutions to do with criminality were joined together probably for the first time, where prisons and police officers shared information. When somebody left prison, they had to give an address to say where they were going to be living. That information was passed on to the police service. Notes were taken in the Habitual Offenders' Registers. That was centrally collected by the Metropolitan Police in London under the governorship of the Home Office. And registers, which are in the National Archives, kept of every single person who had been released on licence from prison. And central government used this to compile numbers of known thieves, known deprecators, and to try and calculate how many persistent criminals were at large in society at any one time, and that assisted them, and they're very proud of it, that assisted them to formulate criminal justice policy as they went on. Typically, the information recorded in the habitual offenders' registers, this is just interesting for people studying their family history if they have somebody who has uh, appeared in a register. Date and place of birth, very useful for us for linking offenders together. Hair and eye colour, tattoos, Uh, most people, most men, I should say, qualify myself. Most men had tattoos. Some of those uh, are quite revealing to us. Uh, A dot between the thumb and the forefinger, for example, saying that they had been, that indicated they had been in a reformatory school. Two dots indicated that they had been in a reformatory school and subsequently imprisoned. A D was often a symbol of military discipline, that they had suffered some kind of discipline whilst in the armed forces. Birthmarks, height, I must say that uh, when Dave Cox and I were originally recording all of this, we were a bit sceptical of recording, for our purposes, tattoos, birthmarks, things like that. When we got to the use of aliases and trying to find whether an individual was the same individual, we actually found it remarkably useful. (laughs) So we stopped sneering at the Victorians a little at that point. The antecedent history, every offence that they'd committed... Often even petty offences were recorded. The date of release from custody. What police response there had been. For example, were they subject to supervision? For how long? Had they been met at the station? Where did they live? Had they reported every month? What happened when they didn't report? Which was an imprisonable offence. All breaches were detailed there. So we know how regularly people were reporting. Whether they were keeping to their... uh, the provisions of the Act or not, the date they left the area, or whether they died. And these registers stretch uh, forward well into the 20th century. So from 1869 through to the 20th century, we have a lot of information. Now, we use the Habitual Offenders registers for our research and the things that we've published, but there's an awful lot of criminal records out there which would be of maybe of interest and maybe of use to people studying crime in this period, or, I suppose more importantly, criminals, particular individual criminals in this period. Here we have the um, the photographs from Reading Jail, or 1887. All of the prisoners were required to have their full hands on show because most people, actually these are quite an unusual lot, but most of them had missing digits or some kind of um, scars which could be shown and very difficult to hide. Juveniles, also lots of records kept. This is uh, George Page, aged 12, in 1873. We know a little bit about him. We know his offence, as well as all of his personal details. We know that he was, from this record, originally sentenced to a period in a reformatory school, which never actually happened. And then he was subsequently convicted, and he was sentenced to spend one month in custody and four years in reformatory school. You can pick up quite a lot of information of people who went on the run, I suppose we'd say. So these are the people who breached the provisions of the Act, who failed to report, would be would be found in the Police Gazette. Police Gazette was, of course, something which had been in existence in the 18th century as a hue and cry, and still continued uh, until well into the 20th century as well. We were interested in finding people from uh, the northwest, and we found it very useful to search the Police Gazette for anyone who'd gone on the run, because it gave an indication of not only where they'd escaped from, but sometimes notice of where they'd been found. So we were able to try and track them down. And these aren't just records that are held or relevant to the United Kingdom, also relevant to colonial researchers as well, or even America keep very good records as well. The colonies were experiencing huge numbers of people flying into their their growing economic Towns and cities, and we're trying to keep tracks of people who were flowing in from other areas who committed crimes. And they kept um, not not they're not as good as the habitual offenders registers, but you can pick up a lot of detail. This is one from Vancouver, so Andy Wiggins had made his way from England, right the way across Canada, committing crimes as he'd gone, and eventually we find him captured on paper at least, and by the looks of it, physically as well. <laughs> in Vancouver in 1897. It's not just the colonial (laughs) bureaucracy which is good at capturing criminals on paper. This is the um, records of um, a United States criminal. The border between Canada and United States was very fluid at this time and the Canadians were very worried that American criminals, mafiosi particularly, were starting to flow over the border to escape the authorities of the United States. This is Giuseppe Ferrara, he is a member of the Black Hand Gang, which is a kind of proto-mafia organisation. And he's wanted for extortion, forgery, and he's part of a gang of bomb-exploders, bomb as they call them. You see fingerprints on the left-hand side? They're not particularly interesting to us, apart from to note that they were fingerprinting people. We can't really use those to gather information. But all the rest tells you about his occupation, his place of birth, his appearance. This, there's a great deal of information. These records. This is, if you're trying to track one particular person down, it tells you a lot about their criminal pursuits. But it also—it's a bit difficult to read. But it tells you everywhere that they've been since they emigrated to Canada, about their wife's details, whether they had children or not, what their occupation was and had been in the inter-census years. You know, there's difficult years to find. Really, quite a staggering amount of information. And back to the political incorrectness, they are a mix of fact and opinion, for which to read uh, Prejudice. This is somebody of dual heritage, I think, William Morrison. I'll just read from uh, number two there. Morrison has been convicted on nine different occasions, the offences being of a serious nature, and he has been treated leniently on account of his youth. He is a troublemaker and will be a nuisance to police anywhere a surly type with a bad temper and a hatred for police. If you, uh, if you look up the records of indigenous people, and especially dual heritage, indigenous white people in Australia, those phrases um, turn up time and time again. So this is a kind of code words that the police are using. And this is up until 1950. I think the records of Perth, where this is drawn from, I think went up to 1975. It started in 1870. So it's quite a long period of time. If you were looking for particular people, you may well find them there. Here's one of ours, one of the ones that we've been looking at. This is Edward Palmer. I guess we've only just put this in because his alias was Ned Kelly. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ned Kelly or Edward pa- Edward uh, Palmer was one of the people we found in the Birkenhead habitual offenders registers. We looked at 200 of these people from their birth, all of their criminal convictions, right the way through to their death. 200, 176 men, 23 women, most of them uh, manual labourers or unemployed, and 73% of them were single. And in that regard, even though these are considered to be the most serious and persistent criminals, they are rather typical of most people committing offences, most offences then, and today, and probably always will be, are men. Uh, most of them are unemployed or taken from the, the what we used to call the working classes or the lower social stratification area. And most of them are single. So this is pretty much the same as uh, you'll find in magistrates' courts if you go and visit them today. Single young men commit most crime. No surprise there. Most of them got hit pretty hard by the criminal justice system pretty early. Half had been imprisoned by the age of 21. A third of them had been imprisoned by the age of 16. And rather unusually, compared to today's criminal justice system, uh, nearly 7 out of 10 had been imprisoned on their first offence. The longest first offence that we came across was um, imposed on Edward Howard, who got 12 years for the rape of a 10-year-old girl in Liverpool. We are interested in their criminal careers, And we're interested in notes that over half of them... And remember, these are the most persistent, serious offenders the Victorians could find. Half of them actually desisted from crime. They stopped offending long before they were dead. 58% of them, so over half, were what we would call minor offenders. The vast majority weren't violent offenders, but they were property offenders. And from our categorisation, slightly different from the Victorians, but from our categorisation... Only a fifth of them were people we considered to be dangerous, that is, they had committed offences which either caused or could have caused uh, death or serious property loss. Uh, Here's one who was a a dangerous offender, Joseph Tomlinson. Started out with uh, an offending career, which we, we couldn't actually identify what he'd done between the ages of nine, well, the age of nine, actually, but he ended up in reform school between the age of nine and the age of 14. He lived in Crewe, and he joined the railway works, as pretty much every single male did in Crewe (laughs) at that period, Uh, but he didn't last very long, was sacked for assaulting a co-worker. We find him again when he was caught for taking boots, for which he received a five-year penalty. Some more thefts, and then his first serious sexual offence in 1888, which was an allegation of rape reduced to indecent assault, for which he received six months, that's a Quite a typical sentence for indecent assault in that period. But a shot-breaking. His second, serious offence. And this is the one which brought him under the Habitual Offenders Act I talked about, brought him into our records as a habitual offender. Burglary, for which he received three years. And we can see I've picked out his serious sexual offences. 1897, the rape of an 11-year-old girl, for which he received seven years. In 1904, indecent assault on a, a young boy, two years 1907, he's accused of uh, indecent assault on a a young girl, which is dismissed by the courts. 1910, unlawful carnal knowledge of a girl aged 13, of a boy aged 10, and then there's further offences in 1918 as well. So what we've noticed as criminologists is that there's an escalating, accelerating criminal disposition towards serious sexual offences. And he is, without doubt a dangerous offender. But I don't want you to think that he's typical. The most typical cases that we found in habitual offenders were were people that we wouldn't necessarily consider to be dangerous. Valentine Craig Hill was somebody who's much more typical, uh, who steals things and doesn't stop stealing things. He doesn't take anything which is particularly Sure, it's important to the people who owned it, but you know, it's a watch, some boots, a coat. You know, it's they're not the most dangerous people that you can think of. Now, what we did was to take all of the information we got from the habitual offenders registers and we tried to data layer it I'm going to pompously call it or putting it together, I suppose you might say to try and get a more rounded picture of the people that we were interested in. So, we looked at is ancestry a dirty word here? Or not? I'm not quite sure. No, no, it's great. Ancestry, then. <laughs> and for National archive sources, the 1911 census and uh, the 1901 census. This is actually the census records of um, Dr Crippen that we found for 1901. You can, if you want to do your own searches for you know, notorious criminals, that would be quite easy to do, I think. And we looked at other kind of areas of um, records which we found... Use for the 19th century newspapers online, where you can search for individual offenders or for courts or for crimes and pick those out. Military records, quite a few of our offenders joined the army and then got kicked out of the army. Where we were lucky enough to have employment records, we searched those as well. For example, our offenders who'd lived in Crewe, the railway company kept records of how they behaved at work every time they had... Um, been late, every time they'd been drunk, every time they'd smacked one of their co-workers about. It was all recorded there. And we were able to gauge um, not only how well they'd behaved in prison from the prison records, but how well they'd done when they'd come out and entered into the world of work, if they did so. We actually found that they were no better or worse than any of the other workers at, at Crew And we also looked at births, marriages and deaths data as well, because we were interested to see... When people stopped offending, was it because they had got married or when they had children or when they'd broken up from their wife or when the children had grown up? Those kinds of things. So we looked at the um, census records and also births, marriages and deaths and tried to factor all of this information together. And I'll just present one of these finished cases that we did, the case of Charles Dunning. It looks like a kindly old gentleman there or... um, or vicious sex offender, depending on your point of view, as, you, as you'll see in a moment. We've picked up quite a lot of information about this chap, and I have put him on because he does show where we've drawn, you know, all the places we went to and all the things we've looked at, and brings them all together. We found quite a lot about him in the Habitual Offenders Register, but we also picked him up in the census as well, which shows that uh, 1901 he's a textile worker in Yorkshire, Commits an indecent assault in 1903. Uh, he goes to prison for that in 2nd Division, so that's without hard labour. Some uh, lastly, from the gas meter, Lastly, from the shops. He's obviously um, quite a troubled person. 1906, he uh, tries to kill himself, which is a criminal offence, and he's bound over. Found on enclosed premises, another attempted suicide. And actually, in the Habitual Offenders Register, under scars, marks and tattoos, it does say cut marks across wrists, so that was one way that we were able to um, to identify him as well. Some housebreakings, getting worse, burglary after a previous conviction, Nottingham, for which he receives five years. That's really where the Habitual Offenders Act came in with its minimum tariff, uh, five years' imprisonment. Came out, joined the Cheshire Regiment. He's discharged in 1917 under King's Reg 392. He's an idiot. So, uh, <laughs> It did. Yeah, and it took three years to find out. And being chucked out of the army in 1917 isn't really an act of idiocy. <laughs> yeah, he, su- he survived. Uh, he's not, he actually joins, I don't think we've got it up here, but he joins other regiments as well. He's a serial joiner. Uh, and, he, and he's kicked out on many occasions. Shot breaking in Peterborough, five years. and Three years police supervision that I was talking about, where the police are required to keep tabs on him. Doesn't do much good. More offences until really, I suppose, the turning point. He, he found, uh, found faith, found a God, and he became a missionary in the Baha'i faith, first of all in Belfast, and then he journeys to to the Orkneys. And we actually picked up quite a bit from um, from the records of this religious organisation in the Orkneys as well about him. And uh, it's not really fair, because he's dead and he's not here, but uh, he doesn't even seem to have been very popular in the Orkneys, actually. It does, it does say that he's uh, followed about by small children who threw stones at him. So, uh, but you know, we found quite a lot out about Charles Dunning, anyway. So what we've done is something really quite, quite simple, but we enjoyed it, to link together lots of details and information from criminal sources, of which there are just a staggering amount. I know that the, uh, the prison licences are being uh, developed here at the uh, National Archives at the moment as well, and they'll provide a, yet another source. The ability of the criminal justice system to bureaucratise and to keep records is absolutely amazing, and it provides just a really rich source of material for people who are interested not only in crime, but also, I think, looking at particular people or particular types of crime. What I think is really nice is it brings together family history and genealogists and social historians in a way it doesn't, doesn't often happen. And it brings together academic, if I can call it that, academic <coughs> research and popular research as well in a way that has brought Dave Cox, Dr Dave Cox and I, uh, into contact with lots of people who are you know, family historians from, the local, from lots of local areas to talk to them about particular people, but also has allowed us to publish works which hopefully will have some some influence over the way that people think about offenders and how they can stop stop offending. One thing I think we're probably not quite so good at is sharing stories about people who have criminal pasts, who have found criminal offenders in their when they're doing their own researching their own family histories, and how that information about how those people were treated as indications of what criminal justice policy or attitudes were like in that period, how they could be fed into a broader audience. So that might be something that people here are engaged in doing. I know National Archives have been excellent at popularising history to an unimaginable degree. Maybe there'll be a greater uh, association between local family and s- local history associations and the, uh, the great organs of... Uh, of record keeping, like the National Archives, in the future. I think that the more we can share, the better it will be for uh, knowing more about the criminals in our past, if not our criminal pasts. <laughs> that was fascinating. I'm glad I to... you. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. <laughs> this event was recorded live on the 2nd of April 2009 at the National Archives, queue. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.